0: Good afternoon, everyone. I am Becky Davidson. I chair the Environmental Access Committee, and we also have uh, one of the acting chairs of the Transportation Committee, actually two of them. Um, Pat Sheehan is here, as is Charlie Crawford. Welcome to Taming the Curb, a difficult process indeed. Um, But we're very excited uh, to, to have everyone here. I do have a couple announcements before we jump into the panel discussion um, do we have a volunteer mic runner for a quick second? Is there a volunteer that could run a mic? I can. Okay, Michael's going to do it. Okay. Um, Lori, raise your hand, please. Okay. A couple of announcements. First of all, on Tuesday morning from 7 to 9, the Environmental Access Committee will be at a table in the marketplace uh, with information as follow-ups to this presentation, information that we can either hand you or, or, or pop onto your phone or whatever device you happen to have with you. Um, so we'll be out there at, to answer questions and whatever or listen to your stories on Tuesday from 7 to 9 in the marketplace. So bring your coffee. Uh, I'll need it. Um, and also, also um, you may have seen on the email list over the last couple weeks, ACB of New York is planning a uh, uh, sort of an open house, and Lori Scharf is, is here to describe that. We just got a mic to her. So go ahead, Lori. It's hard to hear back here. It's an I think there's microphone. We're getting a microphone to Lori Scharf um, to, uh, to tell us about her, uh, the ACB of New York uh, uh, pedestrian safety open house that, that they're going to have on Tuesday.
1: Thank you, Becky. Um, This is Lori Scharf, president of ACB of New York. And I had sent an email out, which I will be sending out again because our suite has changed. We didn't think you wanted to come and be in a suite with no air conditioning. Um, I mean, you might not mind, but when you all leave, it's going to smell. So the um, event is, it's an open house on Tuesday from 1230 until 430. And the um, one of the lead attorneys on our ACBV New York's case against New York City will be there to discuss what we are doing within New York. Um, we will be filing class action status against New York City uh, for failure to install at lead pedestrian intervals. 1,300 intersections were switched overnight. Um, and we... Oh, really? I'm so, it's coming across. It, yeah, no, there are speakers, and I'm actually, I'm going to move because I'm in, Kathy, hold my dog, please. Stay. Oh, don't worry, you dropped it. She should stay. I'm just going to move out of the field of the speaker because. It doesn't matter. No, I, it does, it, it sort of does matter, but I don't know, if, do we have somebody from sound still in here? Ooh. So what I was saying was that we will be discussing what is currently going on with the ACB of New York case, but Disability Rights Advocates, which is a nationwide uh, legal services corporation, would like to hear from people in other states. Uh, They are specifically looking for people from Illinois. Uh, They're looking for Maryland to see what your pros and cons have been with your legislative work that has been done there as well as California. And any other state, um, and you can just drop in. Our suite is one five five zero in the Riverside. Uh, come and spend a few minutes, you know, come or come and just hear about uh, what's going on across the country as, as well as with our current case.
0: Okay, thank you, Lori. Um, we are really fortunate to have quite uh, an interesting group of panelists to talk to us today on a number of issues relating to, to this. I have to lean way over here. Um, and I, I just want you to take a second to think about the context that we're working from um, of course we're all pedestrians at one time or another and our safety as pedestrians is something that we think about on a daily if not hourly basis. Um, studies have shown or research has shown that pedestrian vehicle accidents and fatalities have increased something like 41% since 2008 which is pretty ridiculous um, and and there's an estimate that in 2018, over 6,000 pedestrians uh, were killed in traffic, which is really pretty appalling. Um, so, um, and it's not just blind and visually impaired pedestrians, it's, that's pedestrians in general, but being a pedestrian is is uh, kind of an interesting thing now. We have, it seems like just when you think, well, okay, I think we can figure this out. We have everything we're going to have. Somebody invents something else. So now we have the e-scooters, which will be talked about. We have the e-bikes. We have shared spaces. We have Lyft and Uber cars dropping people off and picking people up along curbs. We have all kinds of stuff going on at the curb. We have bike lanes, all kinds of stuff, and it just makes our lives as pedestrians in general and as blind and visually impaired pedestrians in particular um, a little bit trickier. Um, And the other piece of this that that I had not really thought too much about, even though I'm in the age range now, is that the the number of visually impaired pedestrians 65 and older um, is, of course, increasing as we baby boomers reach that age. And it's only going to continue to increase because age, age-related vision loss is something that um, we all are aware of, even though some of us have had vision loss since we were like three months old. So. Um, so these are all things to consider, and from the transportation end of it, from the vehicular end of it, and, and even as pedestrians, I'm sure some of you have noticed this, um, people are distracted. They're kind of doing their own thing. Um, they're on their phones, they're texting, they're, they're doing whatever um, other than looking at what they're doing or where they're going. So there are all kinds of things out there that we are Dealing with. So, we have a great panel today. Um, Charlie Crawford um, is representing um, the Vision Zero aspect from Maryland, where lots of stuff is happening. We have Heidi Simon from an organization called America Walks, which we, she will tell you more about. She actually joined us on um, an environmental access. Committee conference call a couple months ago, and uh, we're really excited to to be developing a relationship with America Walks. I think it's a really important connection. We have Michael D'Amico from Reconnect Rochester. Michael comes to us with both an engineering background and an advocacy background. And Lucas Frank. I think everybody probably knows Lucas, but Lucas is probably the most up-to-date person on the research in, involved with you know all these statistics and what happens at intersections and how they work. Um, Pat Sheehan is up here representing the Transportation Committee, and uh, we're just very excited that all of you are here as well. Pat, do you want to add anything? Sure,
2: if there's a, a mic, I can just sit yeah.
0: oh, who's Oh, who's got the wireless? Oh, no. okay. oh
2: keep it away Hi, This is Pat Sheehan, and I'm just happy to, <laughs> to welcome everybody here this afternoon. Uh, the partnership between Environmental Access and trans- ACB's Transportation Committee uh, has been uh, well established over the last five, ten years, and so this program um, deals with both both aspects. What are the what are the systems out there that we can use? Uh, what is Vision Zero? How can we partner with America Walks? Uh, what are we doing with respect to um, e scooters, e bikes? What kind of problems uh, do, they, do they present to us and how can we, as an organization, go back and advocate um, uh, with those organizations, either on the state basis, the local basis, or nationally, uh, and figure out what we need to do. What you'll see this week from uh, Environmental Access Committee, and I believe there's also a resolution from the Transportation Committee coming out. Uh, our resolutions that deal with leading pedestrian indicators, okay. education of, for pedestrians in crosswalks, um, and uh, what was the third? Well, one?
0: Actually, we have there's, – there's that, the lead pedestrian yeah. interval one. There's one that has to do with we are in the process of creating um, a YouTube video on pedestrian safety that will be geared towards both drivers and pedestrians. Um, and we're hoping to so there's a resolution related to that and I just saw another resolution come out from a member of the environmental access committee I don't know how many of you know Gene Lozano but um, and, and, uh, on, sh- on the uh, shared mobility device the e-scooter basically that he's presenting a resolution on so and Pat's on that committee so if you're in general session when resolutions come up uh, state your, let us hear your voice um, it's really important that we're asking um, a lot a lot of both um, government agencies and the ACB itself to, to try to get our voices heard. Um, the Environmental Access Committee is also making um, outreach outreach to the AER. Um, environmental access committee and and we're and america walks we're all hoping to be able to come together and work together to try to resolve some of these some of these things but our ma- main objective today is to talk about what actually is happening and depending on where you are in the country it could all be very very different and there are things that are happening in the suburbs that are not happening in the cities and vice versa and the other important thing is that we want to Make sure that you can find out where to get the tools you need to advocate, a lot of which happens on the local level because a lot of the the, the intersection controls and all of that that is on the local level with local traffic engineers and and the and the people who make all these lovely decisions so um, we want to we want to be able to advocate not I mean, certainly nationally but recognizing that getting national standards and uh, past or out there is really quite the process, we can certainly start at our local levels. So we also want to make sure we have time to answer questions, um, to hear suggestions if people have had something that worked really well. So I'm going to start out, uh, I'm going to ask, we're going to start out with Heidi Simon from America Walks. Uh, do you want the wireless or yeah. do you want something? Can I, I
3: can get a wireless.
0: Okay, so can I?
3: Give her the wireless. I I
0: have it. Oh, you got it, okay. So, welcome Heidi Simon.
3: Thank you, and thanks for having me and America Walks at your meeting today. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview about who we are as an organization, some of the work that we do. Um, and some of the ways that we're hoping to partner with all of you in efforts to make safer streets. So America Walks is a national nonprofit we've been around for 20 years. And our mission is to provide resources and training to communities, states, and at the national level to create safe, accessible, and enjoyable places to walk and move. That takes a lot of different um, formats and a lot of different programs. Um, But at the end of the day, our goal is to make walking a priority um, for every community and to make sure that every person has the right to walk because we do see it as a, a human right at America Walks. So as I mentioned, we are a 20-year-old um, national nonprofit. We were started um, by five small local pedestrian advocacy organizations. So when Becky talks about the power of the local, um, I'm, here, I'm here as proof. Uh, 20 years ago we were five organizations, um, five individuals that would come together once a year. We now have a staff of about 10 who work with a network of over 35,000 advocates across the US and 700 state and local organizations. Um, so the the power of the local is real um, and I work with it and see it and I'm inspired by it every day. So I'm excited to talk to all of you about how you can um, get involved and and do more at the local level, um, as well as supporting hopefully our our efforts together at the state and national levels. Um, In the past five years, we've really taken a look at who America Walks is as an organization to try and find ways to expand um, what tables we're at and who is at our table. Um, So we've been looking at walking and the way it intersects with transit, affordable housing, gentrification and displacement, Climate change, which is a, a big one that's getting more and more attention, um, because we, we see walking as intersecting with all those issues and much, much more. And as we do that, we find new partners. Um, and so we've been working with the disability rights movement for, for the past few years um, and probably for the past um, six months or so, working um, with all of you and um, your group to, to find ways to work together on our shared issues as well. Um, I can touch more on our advocacy efforts as as we get into the discussion. I don't want to get too deep. Um, I don't think it's going to surprise anyone the type of advocacy that we do at the local state or national level. Um, At the local level, we really are advocating for putting people first, design into place and getting more community involvement and community engagement on whatever format that might look like in your community, Um, advocating for things like a safe systems approach that uses data um, and knowledge to guide decisions and not just um, kind of outdated modes and models, Um, and going all the way up to the state and national level to advocate for things like Vision Zero, Complete Streets, um, and of course funding. The the number one question we get is always about how you pay for the changes we want to see take place, so we're we're kind of the ones in the back of the room raising the hands and asking about how, how you're going to um, put people first in terms of federal funding for, for transportation. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, Most of what you say has
1: been lost back
3: here. Oh, okay. I will, I will speak up. There are seats in the front of the room. Yeah, there's lots of seats. A, a lot of seats. I don't know why that I know
4: that's weird.
3: I feel like I'm talking like a nice stuff, okay, yeah. um, Just a brief overview of some of our programs because I do want to encourage all of you to consider working more closely with us as we also find ways to work more closely with you. Um, so, we do have technical assistance and training programs, one of which is called our Walk in College, which is an online learning program that uh, we work with 25 advocates from across the U.S. to train them on advocacy and communication efforts around walking walkable communities. We have a grant program where we fund micro grants to communities to do any number of types of projects like paint murals, um, repair staircases, Um, improve crosswalks and sidewalks. Um, So that's available to communities on an annual basis. Um, And then we we have any number of technical assistance programs where we work directly with communities and states to make improvements to their policies and programs um, and built environment to to improve safety and accessibility for people who who walk and move um, and take active transportation. in terms of ways that we are hoping to work together with all of you um, and that you might consider working with us, I think we'll get into a lot of the shared issues and shared concerns that we have. Um, there are many. Um, but you know, as Becky touched on the issue of micro-mobility, all pedestrians are, are seeing, seeing that as they literally get dropped into our communities with no warning, which is just lovely when you wake up to find a fleet of scooters outside your door. Um, Um, safety uh, there's over 6,000 people who died while walking last year that number is on track to grow in 2019 Um, the latest numbers that came out the prediction, um, the headline was very optimistic and it said that um, traffic fatalities were down but when you dig into the numbers traffic fatalities for people who are in cars are down, Um, the numbers of people who are riding bikes or who are walking those numbers are still climbing so obviously our, our priorities as transportation officials and transportation advocates um, are, are not necessarily in sync with the, the results we would want to see. And then finally, and this is kind of a, a larger issue, um, but one that we would like to, to see change and one that is a, a struggle. Um, I, I never understand why I have to make the case for people to be walking advocates. Everyone walks, you would think everyone would be an advocate for walking. Um, but really coming to the table as, as a transportation issue um, and making walking a, a respected mode of transportation and having its due at the, the federal and state and local level with that in mind. I think I'm going to pause there knowing that we want to um, keep time for questions. Okay. All right. So thank you, Heidi. Um, those statistics
0: are pretty terrifying, um, but America Walks has, I, does run webinars periodically through that, the walking college, and they're, they're quite informative, so um, we'll, we'll hope that we can get some of that information out to people. Um, do we have any immediate questions for Heidi regarding America Walks? Do we? Yeah. Okay. We have one of our panelists is also acting as our mic runner. So keep your hand up (laughs) and be nice to Michael. Yeah. Okay.
5: Yeah, you said that your company that does different things like help with fundraisers on improving things like.
3: We yeah we have a we have an annual grant program that do people you have a can apply
5: to that can increase you know the noises on some streets you know they make noises when we cross you know they beep or they talk
3: yeah we've we've we have funded some of those improvements um, one of we have a specific grant that looks at improving accessibility and that would that would fall in that category
5: does that cover the United States or just a few states do you know I'm sorry. Does that cover the whole United States or only?
3: No, our grant program is small. So we are we're a, a fairly lean and mean um, nonprofit, as many nonprofits are. So the grants that we give out, we see as catalytic grants, they're only $1,500. Um, so the, the grants that we fund usually focus on, you know, a pilot crosswalk or intersection to hopefully then encourage the rest of the, the community take, to take action or to adopt something.
5: So how do you, how do we decide what state to give it to, or how do to... we?
3: Uh, we accept applications. Okay. Yeah. So we um, last year we received over eight hundred applications from communities across the U.S. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's an easy application. I don't I don't want to read long applications, and so I don't require people to fill out long. Applications. Are you
5: allowed to give out the application for us to give it to if we want to our state? Or?
3: Um, I don't have it with me. We actually, we will open the next round of applications uh, mid-October. So our grant cycle is we open applications in October. They run through the first uh, week of December. We notify our grantees in the end of December, and then you have the entire next calendar year to use the funds. Okay. You have a
0: website, right? Yes. Yes. If you go to
3: um, our website, americawalks.org, there's, there's information on that program as well as others. Which is americawalks.org? Which is americawalks.org. America um, and if you sign up for our email list, you'll get many, many emails from me as, as, things, as things get announced. Okay. Okay. And our webinars will also be announced through that email list, too.
0: So, as Michael makes his way back with the microphone, um, he will, I will ask him to be our next speaker. And Michael, as I said, is from ReConnect Rochester. He has quite a, a varied background in a number of aspects of this and of a walkable and safe city from here at the local level. And I will let Michael describe more about what he does uh, here in Rochester. Thank you. My name is
6: Michael D'Amico. I am a landscape architect by day and uh, by night. I work with uh, two nonprofit organizations. Um, One is a local uh, nonprofit, Reconnect Rochester. We are the transportation advocates for the nine county region uh, that you are currently in. As well as I, I am the vice president of external affairs for the New York Upstate chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects. That's uh, that's always a mouthful, um, but uh, so between those two uh, those two positions, I I have uh, quite an extensive uh, background in volunteering, um, you know, over the past five to seven years. Um, I my background as a landscape architect. Uh, I currently have been working on the redesign of our main street here. Um, the project right outside the doors uh, for the terrace. Uh, that project came about just to make the entire terrace accessible. Um, you know the the city here in Rochester really has has started to put accessibility to the forefront and the, uh, the current mayor and their administration has put an emphasis on accessibility and um, you know every corner has been looked at. Uh, the county on the other hand um, on the transportation end is really the, the aspect that, uh, you know, the really uh, the governing aspect that is the pinch point for us here locally. Um, so when we speak about local advocacy, I, I cannot under, uh, understate the importance of that and how we, the local advocates, work with more national advocates like, the, like uh, you know, America Walks or the National Complete Streets Coalition that can help support us and our local efforts to address these issues that we all are here to, to talk about. It is my background uh, in the design realm, uh, as as well as uh, that, that really has driven my um, volunteer, uh, my my aspirations for volunteerism, uh, and that's why I'm here today.
7: Uh, if you if there are any questions, I.
6: I, I There's, there's two questions so I'm uh, I'm going to the first one right now
2: yes I, I don't know if you are uh, able to speak to this but there there is uh, the battle uh, always starts in the mind what what is the 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 mental position behind the transportation Issues that we're having are are pedestrians looked down upon because they don't drive or can't drive or can't afford a car or what what is the psychological background that that leads to these issues?
6: I don't think we have enough time to start talking about that. <laughs> um, in it, there, there is a discrepancy or this perceived. Um, Hierarchy in in our rights of way, and you know, motorists are the ones that are believe that they have that they have this entitled space that the space is entitled for them. Um, we can go back as far as uh, you know, hit the First World War, as to the auto industry and and how much they have lobbied and successfully lobbied for the built environment that we have today. Um, it you know. We, we can only go back 1991. Uh, I, I'm sure everyone is familiar uh, you know, with ADA being signed in at the federal level. Um, you know, Here in New York State, 20 years later, 20 years later it took to have the state take and, and sign into legislation just as the federal uh, level did for complete streets legislation. Um, so this, this mental aspect, it does all come down to a mental aspect. And I, and I think that um, we're starting to see some state department of transportations uh, st- address the issue, both um, at a design level. The highway design manuals now include pedestrian design manuals, um, as well as green infrastructure. Um, you know, it, 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 the states, uh, the, the, at the federal level, we're, we're still not there. But I, I think certain states are starting to take a better approach at this. And, I, and we will hear specifically uh, about Maryland uh, very soon. That's a really interesting question.
5: There you go. Yeah, thinking of transportation or walking, you know, or safety. Are, are you guys helping out in anything about the border wall and all these illegal walk ins and building? because oh, yeah, yeah, we're having problems with all, all these walkings and, and and illegal people driving taxis and. Uh, can
6: you elaborate a little
5: bit more? Well, like, are you, you guys are are you, are you guys helping out at all with the, trying to you know build the border wall so that we'll stop getting illegal immigrants walking into our country and allowing. <laughs> Illegal immigrants driving taxis? And.
0: That's not quite where we're going with this discussion, I don't You're think. Not. I appreciate the question, um, but I think what we really want to focus on is what we can do at the local level to make our own streets that we walk every day um, safer. And unless you live down in one of those towns where that really is a problem, then, you know, yeah, you would want to, to work with your local um, authorities on that.
6: Yeah, I think we're we're trying to keep an emphasis on uh, on a specific type of infrastructure, and and that just being the roadway.
0: Do we have any any other questions for Michael?
8: I got one uh, one question. How did you were you able to work with the city of Rochester in completing your um, complete streets and and upgrades and and what have you? Um, interested to see what uh, Rochester did because I know what uh, what all I'm from Albany, New York, and I know we've been working on that. So I'm just interested to see how how you developed it.
6: Well, Kathy, that's that's wonderful. In fact, you, so you you must know Capital Roots, the Capital Roots organization. Oh, uh, I heard that one. No, I don't know that. Oh, okay. Well. Mark, yeah, mark that down and please get in contact with them. Um, they kind of are doing what we're doing here uh, in Rochester. Um, you know, we, all we're doing is advocating for complete streets policies and or legislation that, that is, is accepted by the city and, and that therein um, addresses a lot of these issues when it comes to the redesign or the reconstruction or the resurfacing or the repainting of roads. I think we might, we might get, in, get into that a little bit more with our next presenter.
0: Are we ready? Any more questions? Okay, I'm gonna ask um, Lucas Frank now to talk a little bit more specifically about what some of these things are and how they impact us as blind and visually impaired pedestrians, um, just to kind of give us a, a little bit more background. And I hope I, I didn't ask him to do this, but I'm hoping that maybe he can also tell us a little bit about how they're dealing with it in, like, Europe and other countries where, some in some cases, they're they're far more advanced than we are. So um, I'm going to turn this over to Lucas, and uh, I know you'll want to hear what Lucas has to say.
9: Good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> um, I think the the, the overwhelming impression that I have uh, is the speed of change. It is stunning. Um, To give you two examples, I was recently at a meeting of the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And There was a presentation given by a gentleman from New York City on what are called leading pedestrian intervals and if you don't know what these are and I presume there's someone in the room who doesn't so let me just ask everyone else to hold tight. uh, the, the way most people have traditionally been trained to cross streets is that when the parallel traffic next to you starts, you presume you have the, the full time to cross the street and you initiate your crossing pretty soon after you're sure that that traffic is uh, on its way and yet giving, guaranteeing you the maximum green time to cross the street. Well, because of the pedestrian fatality rates uh, that we were discussing earlier that Heidi brought up, <clears throat> one one attempt to address this has been to to use what are called leading pedestrian intervals. The idea here uh, and I have the language in front of me from the from the uh, what 's called the m u t c d which is the manual of uniform traffic control devices and if you 'd like to hear it i 'll read it really quickly. Anybody not want to hear it okay um <laughs> So this is from what's called uh, Part 4 of the MUTCD, uh, Section E. And what it says is that intersections with high pedestrian volumes and high conflicting turning vehicle volumes, a brief leading pedestrian interval during which an advanced walk indication is displayed for the crosswalk walk while red indications continue to be displayed to parallel through or turning traffic. It may be used to reduce conflicts between pedestrians and turning vehicles. Sounds pretty good, right? Right, sounds great. There is a problem, okay. Um, There is a guidance statement under that which says if a leading pedestrian interval is used, the use of accessible pedestrian signals should be considered, should be considered is the way the language is written. And there's a support statement underneath that explains to traffic engineers why that's important. Okay, let's get back to speed. So basically what happens is the, the walk indication comes on for some time and that's also specified uh, in turn, it should be about three seconds. If a leading pedestrian interval is used, it should be at least three seconds in duration and should be time to allow pedestrians to cross at least one lane of traffic. And it goes on, and I don't want to get into more detail unless you really want it. Um, so, good idea, but you're still stuck with the idea that you're gonna initiate your crossing when the traffic starts to move, so obviously, It's easy to fix, you just make it accessible to the person who's blind or visually impaired and when the traffic starts, they can start too. Or when the, the leading pedestrian signal comes on, you can start too. Without that, you're stuck listening to the traffic, waiting for the traffic to move and the drivers are thinking you're gonna wait on the corner because they see the walk indication and see you not leave. You see the cross-communication that can happen? Right. So, all right. So this is a problem. Well, this, this language was written in the MUTCD in about 2009. This is the 2009 edition of the uh, Manual and Uniform Traffic Control Devices. In 2009, according to the gentleman I heard speaking, there were nine intersections in New York City that were equipped with these leading pedestrian intervals. So it was a small problem. According to him, the most recent count in New York City is 2,200 intersections. You were low at 1,300. That was in one year. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, the current total is 2,200. So all of a sudden, you've gone from having every intersection, New York City was a pedestrian paradise despite the fatality rates, because, which perhaps helped people get to paradise too, but the, um, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, because every intersection in Manhattan and New York City pretty much, with some exceptions, is fixed-timed, and, and which makes life really, you don't have to interact with the intersections to call it pedestrian timings and so on and so forth. But, If in from 2009, actually in the last five years, it's gone from uh, some reasonable number to 2200, all of a sudden New York City becomes kind of uh, a really difficult place to get around. And the language in the MUTCD says, should be considered, which is as weak as it can possibly be. Uh, The reason that that people like Janet Barlow and BZ Benson and me and and some other people go to the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Device meetings is to say hey What are you guys doing? (laughs) And they you know, they're not stupid, but, but they just don't think about it and so I had the opportunity to speak to people from federal highways about this, because there is a new version of the MUTCD coming down the pike, pretty quick. There's going to be a notice of proposed amendment out sometime in the next year, I expect. Um, so be on the lookout for that, because your comments are going to be key. But I was to me, this is as black and white an issue as you can possibly imagine. It's just, if you're doing that, you need to make it accessible or else you're, misle- you're deliberately misleading people because we also know from research that Janet and Beezy and others have done that there is a gap without an accessible signal. There is a gap between the time the signal changes and the time the blind pedestrian initiates their crossing, which is made up of the person verifying that that traffic is leaving, making sure it's not a turning car, it's a through vehicle and that you can go. So that gap has been calculated as being about six seconds. Typically, it's an average. Okay, so now you have a three second delay before you can actually start to move. And then when you, the traffic is moving, you have an additional six second delay on top of that. So you have something like a nine second delay before you can leave the curb, but you can't blame drivers for going, well, that person's certainly staying there, they're not leaving, and there you go into the street. And so you're at greater risk. So this is, you know, but again, I wanna get back to the pace of change. 2009, nine intersections. 2019, 2200 intersections in one city. And New York City's an exception, but it's one that clearly needs to be addressed. And there are advocates in New York City who are working hard on this uh, and, and really hoping to make change. We're working at the federal level. I think, they, I think the, fedor, the feds hear us. I'd be, very, I'd be surprised if this isn't addressed in the, in the next, man, next version of the manual when it comes out for comment, but be on the lookout for that. I wanna look at, talk for just a second about e-scooters as well. How many of you have had encounters with e-scooters? Just give a clap, single clap so everybody knows. Okay, so uh, uh, that's a fair number, all right? D- d- you know, e scooters, they, they came out of nowhere. <laughs> they absolutely came out of nowhere. Do you, the two major companies are Bird and Lime, okay? There are lots of other smaller ones, but the big ones are Bird and Lime. Do you know that those two companies were the two fastest companies to reach $1 billion in valuation in the history of, this, of, of sort of IPOs or whatever they are? I don't know anything about money. I can't balance my checkbook. Um, but they were the two fastest companies to get to $1 billion valuations, which gives, they didn't exist in 2017. In 2018 they hit the street and exploded. And not to mention the bike share programs that various cities have started. And that's a, that's a big issue too, but not as big as the, as the e-scooter issue. And so how are people addressing this? Well, there, there are attempts to get people to ride them in, in the streets rather than the sidewalks. There are regulations all over the place. There are cities that are banning e-scooters. New York City had, has given, I think, um, uh, Karen, am I right? Is there a pilot program on them now, Karen? There's a ban in Manhattan. Okay. Yeah, uh, but the, they're exploding, and then the, and, and the, what they're trying to address here is what's what's called the the final mile or the last mile. And it's a, it's not a reference to when your life is going to end. It's a, it's a it's a reference to uh, you know when you get off the subway or off the bus and you still have a mile to go. You just grab one of these things, and for a dollar fifty, you can end up where you're going very very quickly. So one of the questions that I have is that there are several issues here. There are fairly high injury rates, and fortunately or not, most of the injuries are to the people riding the scooters because they fall off them with great regularity. Um, the uh, and they're supposed to wear helmets but nobody brings their helmets so nobody does that so there's lots and lots of injuries there have been a couple of fatalities mostly again to the riders themselves but also um, to pedestrians upon occasion uh, and so on and I think so the, the other issue with them is that they do not have parking stalls they're just dropped on the sidewalk and you can you can just grab one and go there and then drop it outside the address where you, where you, you were going and, and you're done. And so there are two issues here. One is that when they're ridden on sidewalks, they're just bloody dangerous because they can go up to 15 miles an hour. And, and they can go higher, but most places are regulating them. Heidi's saying higher, higher. What's, what, it's, I think they're 25, but in many places they're regulated down to 15. And that may be part of, part of the solution. 25 is just completely nuts. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> and they are often ridden on sidewalks. And the other problem is they're just dropped where anybody wants to, so they become pedestrian hazards in that way. Although, you know... So I, I think, that to me, and this, and this goes broader, I think it goes to the the bicycling craze, because bicycling is becoming much more... Popular, and which is a good thing overall for society, uh, but yeah, you know there there are side effects of that too. Now, uh, Becky mentioned that I can speak a little bit to the European perspective. Uh, I, I, I grew up in Holland, and I get back to Holland pretty free. Any Dutch people in the audience? Nee, maar zeg, je zou toch willen dat iemand Nederlands hier bijzond. But the and. Um, of course, they have bicycles out the yin-yang. I mean, there are so many bicycles. There are more bicycles than people in Holland, by a good factor. Um, but, you know, and, and they, there are, of course, pedestrian bicycle incidents in Holland all the time, I'm sure. But you know what they have in Holland that we don't have here? And it's cultural, is Bells. And when you look at, when I look, stopped recently and looked, I was in, when I was in Columbus, I was looking at their bike share program. They had bikes that you could pull out, you know, you have a contract, just pull your bike out of the stall, ride wherever you want to go. You know what those bicycles didn't have? Bells. And so if you look at regulations in your town, New York City, for example, does bury deep in paragraph 47 of section F, you know, whatever the hell it was, there was a requirement that there be a bell on a bicycle, but many towns and cities do not have that. And I think that both for the e-scooters and for bicycles, there should be a requirement for bells and encouragement for people to use them. And I think you know, that, that that's a, a positive step that could be taken as well as regulations about where you can drop your darn scooter. <laughs> You know, uh, rather than in the middle of the sidewalk. Um, so I, I think these are two interesting phenomena. And again, what I you know that that their problems is absolutely true. That it's going to that it has an impact on the independent mobility of people who are blind or visually impaired is also absolutely true. And the solutions are not brain surgery, or or rocket engineering. These things are relatively simple to address if there is the will and if there is a unified cry for a certain solution. So um, for accessible pedestrian pedestrian signals for LPIs is a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer, and they should do it. Some kind of sound on scooters that can go anywhere from 12 to 25 miles an hour, potentially on sidewalks, is a no brainer. Fix it. And that's what I think we should call for. There we go.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Lucas. (laughs) (laughs)
6: Um,
0: Okay. Well, I'd like to um, I'd like to ask Charlie to speak, and then we'll open it to questions for everybody. Um, one of the issues that, and when Lucas was talking about bells, one of the things that came up was I was doing a presentation um, a couple of years ago at a conference about silent cars, and we were talking about you know the the, the issues that that brings forth. And this guy in the front row started to argue with me that why should we have a sound on silent cars? They're supposed to be silent. We're trying to avoid the noise. And he went on and on and on. I'm like, um, 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 yeah, but you know, we don't want people to getting hit by them. Well, they really should not be allowed to have noises because that defeats the whole purpose. And I said, do you drive? And he said, no. I'm like, okay, so... You know, if you want to get rid of noise, have those people with the boombox speakers on the back of their cars get rid of those. (laughs) But anyway, that just made me think of that when Lucas was talking about bells, which is a really good idea, of course. Okay, so I'm going to ask now for Charlie to talk from his perspective with Vision Zero in Maryland, where there is quite a bit going on.
10: Good afternoon, everybody. Vision zero. Says it all. No vision. (laughs) A program finally for blind people. Uh, I wanna take a couple of minutes to talk about what I think is so important with regards to this whole issue. We've heard about how some folks who are really interested in pedestrian safety because they are pedestrians Without disabilities, with disability doesn't matter, they're just pedestrians. And America does walk. And it's important that we recognize that America walks. More important than that in my view is that we recognize that a lot of Americans who are blind walk. And we have a particular vested interest in making sure that not only America walks, but we walk with it. And if we can form a partnership between the folks that walk and those of us who also walk, then we increase the amount of people that talk about walk. And when you increase the amount of people that talk about something, you increase the amount of attention that gets paid to it. Then you add facts. I mean, Lucas's presentation just now is so good. I mean, I'm just sitting here going, yeah, 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 Right, right, right. Well, you know, it's true that if we add logic and science and reality to what we're saying, not only do people begin to listen, but they begin to understand. And that's where the rub is. Because once you can understand, it's possible for you to identify. And identifying with somebody else's issue is at the heart of successful advocacy. And I, have to tell you that vision zero was a like a blessing to me because I first heard the word and said, yeah yeah, sure, sure. Vision Zero, whatever that is. And it sounds like another one of these, you know, gimmicky things that they, they come out with, you know, like, remember Susie Spotless? You know, the little girl that was so clean and we never had any litter in the country because of her? Well, you know, this is kind of like that. And then somebody said, well, why don't you get involved with it? Talk to some folks about it. So I did. And Two things happened that caused me to get much more involved with Vision Zero. One is, it was called the, v, the Veers Mill Plan. Veers Mill is an is a avenue in Silver Spring, Maryland where they wanted to improve the environment for the people that drive and that walk and everybody will be happy. Problem is that they did improve the environment for a lot of people who drive and who walk, but they didn't necessarily improve it for people who are blind because they had things like the floating, floating bus stops. Oh. What the hell is a floating bus that's not a boat. Um, it is to be kind an area in the street where a pedestrian can go to get a bus simply because they have to allow the bicycles to go up and down the street before they get to the bus. And they have to allow the traffic to go by before they can get the bus. And by the time they get the bus, they may be young enough to still be able to enjoy wherever they're going. But the point is that they didn't necessarily calculate in this equation who needs to use this bus. Look at the people that use buses. You know, they're either people who are relatively poor, don't have a lot of money, so they have to get the least expensive transportation they can get or they are really old and have gotten to the point where they can no longer drive safely, or they are, um, shall we say, folks from other countries who haven't assimilated into the culture totally yet, so they don't own cars, Um, or they're people with disabilities. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize that, do they really count? Does anybody really care about somebody who rides the bus? I remember from my days um, uh, paying attention to bulletin boards because I was at SISOP at the time, some of the commentary by people, well, you know, the people that ride the bus, they're they're all the poor people. And you know, nah, that's nice, stick them around, that's good. But leave my car alone. So we have to change the perception the perception of who needs the bus and why they need the bus. It's not just people who are poor or people who are disabled or people who are elderly. It's everybody who wants to ride somewhere and doesn't necessarily want to have to use a car or actually wants to be somewhat, um, shall, we, shall we say, uh, responsible and not utilize the resources necessary to use a car rather to non-pollute the environment less by using a bus. In fact, there are many good reasons to produce buses and many good reasons to encourage walking and bicycling. But if we don't do it, then we're left with what is now. And what is now is essentially, I got mine, hope you get yours. And if you don't, too bad. And the people who are most affected by this are sitting in this room. Those of us who don't have the option to get in the car and drive somewhere. Those of us who have to walk down to the bus stop and have to find the bus. We don't have the luxury of taking other forms of transportation. Yes, there is Uber, and yes, there is Lyft, and yes, there's all kinds of other alternatives, but they all have problems associated with them. We all know that. The bottom line is, are we going to make the environment accessible for everybody, or are we simply going to make an environment accessible to the strongest, survival of the fittest? And the fact of the matter is that we need to have an advocacy effort that makes sense to everybody, so that everybody can get behind it. So let me wind up with just a couple of examples of what's happening in Silver Spring. First, I wanna say what's happening in New York is wonderful. God bless you guys. Um, but I, I just finished writing a letter to the county council in my county, Montgomery County, and to the executive um, director of the county. And in that letter, I explain, you know, for some period of time, we have been asking you to pay attention to the issues of people with disabilities trying to get around the county. And you've done a lot of good things. But one thing you seem to do the best is not listen to us. fact of the matter is that we hear all about, well, you know, we have this design and that design. And I said to the folks at Vision Zero, I said, you know, you rely upon expertise of engineers and that is wonderful because they know engineering. What they don't know is mobility for blind people. What they don't realize are the issues that are attended to but not necessarily implicit in being a pedestrian. And so if you need to have some additional assistance in order to be able to access the environment that everybody else accesses, then what is the problem? The only problem is you're not paying attention. And if you do pay attention and you do wanna spend the money necessary to do that, guess what, it's not a lot of money. It isn't a lot of money. Fact of the matter is that for a relatively small investment, you can pretty much make your, your intersections safe and usable by people with disabilities, whether they're blind or in a wheelchair or whatever. But if you don't pay attention to that issue upfront, you're gonna have a lot of cost later on repairing it all. And Vision Zero, this is where we get to the premise. Vision Zero says, that the object of Vision Zero is to make the environment such that you won't have any more traffic deaths and you won't have any more pedestrian deaths because the society itself commits itself to making that a goal and to doing what's necessary to make it happen. That is a wonderful promise. And like any other promise, if it's broken, it really hurts. But this promise is one we have to make sure happens. And I'm so glad to see America walks. I'm glad to see that the mobility folks are here. I'm glad to see that blind people are here. I'm glad to see that all of us are here knowing what we need to do. And that is take action. Get involved with your local politicians and your local engineers and your local other folks in society. Spread the word that we're all the same and that together We can build a society in which everybody's rights are honored and everybody can win and we can do it. Thank you.
9: Becky, can I jump on that for just one second? Sure. Um, I just want to talk about floating bus stops because it's not just bus stops, it's also tram locations around the country. Uh, they 're all over the place, and uh, there's, uh, there is no set answer for this it 's very common in Europe as well. Amsterdam is a city I know very well, has uh, tram locations out in the middle of streets um, and it 's interesting i 've watched blind people travel in Amsterdam, and their technique, for, first of all it 's not easy to know where the tram stop is. One of the things that's happening now as we speak uh, is that there's research going on in San Francisco looking at guidance surfaces. So, uh, and, and these things take are glacial in nature, but there's research going on looking at, so you know, you know the bumps when you get to the end of a block, the detectable warnings? Well, that's one surface, but it's supposed to only warn of a vehicular way but there's a research going on to develop what's called a guidance surface, which will be linear in nature of some type. Exactly what it will be, I don't know. There's a federal research project going on called NCHRP B-46 uh, that I'm peripherally involved in uh, that is looking at developing a United States standard for guidance surfaces. But you could imagine, for example, walking up a block uh, to encountering a guidance surface that would tell you that there was a crosswalk or that might indicate that you could get at that point to a floating transit stop whether bus or tram but now you've got to cross that pesky bike lane and the European technique for doing that is to hold the cane out at shoulder height which, which does a really good job of stopping bicycles
0: okay. <laughs>
2: Really tall.
0: Cane. <laughs> <laughs> do much the cane. Yeah, it's kind of hard on the cane. But what about a dog? <laughs> yeah, Lucas, what, how, what about uh, guide dogs in that? In not not talking about raising dogs, but I'm talking about how do guide dog handlers deal with the, with that kind of situation, um, particularly in Holland. Or,
9: The dogs are much smaller and the people are much stronger. You hold them out at shoulder. (laughs) No, 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 uh,
2: in
9: in, in Holland and in many other countries, uh, the cane is integrated into guide dog travel, at least partially for that reason. And so people with guide dogs uh use a a, sh- a shorter white cane it's it's a guide dog cane actually that they hold out at shoulder height and that's true in many other locations as well
0: okay that's that's uh that's pretty cool um i i want to uh, just say, say something that has become sort of a uh, a catchphrase uh, a dream of mine will say, Um, I honestly think in terms of advocacy that every... Hold on a second. You stay right here. No, I got her. Um, Is that every state affiliate should have a pedestrian safety committee. Every affiliate, every special interest group that... um, that this would directly impact, should have a pedestrian safety committee. GDUI's advocacy committee, of which Charlie is the chair, is going to ask GDUI to form a pedestrian safety committee. I think CCLVI, um, if they haven't already, might want to do that just because um, people with visual impairments, there's such a variation on what what people can see and how they, you know, how they respond and all of that, their concerns are are uh, vitally important. So um, at least on the state level, if we can get every affiliate to have a pedestrian safety committee that reaches out to their local chapters and works with them, I think that would be a really good start to, to working together as an advocacy organization to do that. Um, I want to open it up to questions for our panel in general. Um, does anybody need to take a stretch break? No? Okay. I think we have until 5.30, but I don't know that necessarily we're going to go that long, which is probably fine with everybody. Is anybody here on the newly forming ACB craft beer committee? No? No? Okay. that happened during the committee chairs meeting this morning and i thought it was pretty funny because i wanted to join but anyway um i'd like to open it up for questions for any or all of our panelists to answer um, about these issues and one of the things i'm curious about myself is are there any communities that any of you are aware of that have found a way to make sidewalks to designate sidewalks in a certain way for bikes and for scooters and for people on foot. Um, are there any, is anybody aware of any specific design that, that somebody's putting forth to deal with this? Just out of my own curiosity. And then we'll open it up for questions for from you guys. I don't, Mike, do you want to be the mic runner? Yep, I'm, on, I'm already out here. Oh, yeah, oh, Okay. <laughs> So that's what happens when you have blind people up at the front table
11: Okay. hi Um, this is a question this is not an answer to your question I'm sorry I put my hand up before you asked that Um, first of all I have to preface this by I live in the boonies I don't deal with these issues yet but when I come to conferences or something like that I do and my sister lives in Washington D.C. and is blind and she does deal with them so I'm asking some of this on her behalf Um, but I first wanted to ask Lucas about these e-scooters it seems to me if it's e-scooter it needs to be charged correct so why don't they have to be parked in a charge station when they're returned, and that would stop them being dropped on sidewalks? It just makes sense to me. Um, the other question I wanted to ask was, uh, in terms of finding Lyft and Ubers or other rides, along everybody's stopping, everybody's on the curbs, and you may have a smartphone that tells you it's a gray Toyota, which we did yesterday but how do you tell which one's yours? And my sister's been charged for no-shows because she couldn't find the ride. So does anybody have suggestions on that? And um, the, other, the other big issue in D.C. right now is the ter- torn-up metro, and my sister is badly affected by that. The, the what? Thank you.
12: Torn-up metro.
9: In DC. right. Uh, in terms of the e-scooters, as opposed to the, 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 the bike share programs, the bike share programs have... Uh, Bike racks that that essentially lock and you have to unlock to take out your bike uh, with a a credit card. You have an account. Uh, The the e scooters are charged, and what what happens is, I think they can be tracked uh, by the the scooter burden and uh, Lime, and they get picked up at night, charged, and dropped off again at fixed places. So they'll have three or you know five or six outside of a transit stop.
6: It, It has become a business.
9: Say again. Yeah, exactly. It's a business. The bird—they—that's—that's that's how they make their money. They charge. I have the app on my phone. I tried. I—I I haven't ridden a scooter scooter yet. I'm, I ride a scooter anyway. But uh, so that—that's they are. They're picked up in the evening and charged. It isn't. It isn't. You
2: can get them through.
13: through no, my and and what someone wants, uh, my own bike. Uh, yes. The. Um, um, we we are having lots of problems with the uh, scooters in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we we in 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 my neighborhood we um, raised the the issue and plane and did news articles on the local TV stations, and uh, they they have kind of taken them out of the uh, Clifton. Um, neighborhood uh, around the, um, the school for the blind temp- temporarily. I hope that continues. But um, yes, um, um, the e-scooters the are, they're a mess. They, the, the biggest problems I have with them is you know like, someone uses one and they leave it outside a restaurant. It just sits for the rest of the day. And they're not picked up until that night. And I, I think that's one of the biggest problems.
9: Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, one of the places that they're frequently found, I know, is at the bottom of San Francisco Bay. Because a lot of people are really pissed off about this. Uh, so I I think... Uh, uh, Heidi said there are a few at the bottom of the Potomac, Potomac River in D.C. as well. They seem to have an affinity for water. But, the, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, that's why I think, it, I, I think they're a problem. But I, I, I would like to, again, the solutions that I'm proposing... Uh, and and that's just all I'm doing is proposing them, is that there be fixed drop-off locations, and if they're not in a fixed drop-off location, they can be added to the collection in the bottom of the sea, Uh, and that there should be sound attached to them, and I think it should be a once-per-second bell, just as you're riding up the street, it's going ding, ding, so you know they're coming a ways away, and you can... Know and, uh, crossing streets. You know that they sh- that they should have sound attached to them. And again, I think that the the role, in, in, forgive me for being presumptuous, but the role of cons- of of this organization is to come up with a proposed solution, if possible, work with. There's another organization, uh, uh, and, and I can't remember it. Anyway, and and come up with a unified solution that you can propose to. Uh, regulatory authorities with one voice and say put this sound on that thing, uh, so and and try to work this out in some kind of conference committee uh, as a recommendation because it, it, it's very simple. We just need to figure out what to do, what to do and what to recommend.
6: And, and this is one issue as this continues to arise. You know, multi mode. You said this arose over one year. You know, as technology increases, there's going to be another scooter. There's going to be the new technology that's coming out. And we have.
9: Bicycles are becoming e bikes now.
6: Correct. Oh, they've, they've been. It's just now, yeah. Now it's, it's moving to the forefront. Uh, you know, we, we've had motorbikes for years. You know, and I, I go around the city over here. I, I'm an avid bicyclist. I bike. You know, I, my wife and I own one car. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all over. Uh, but the most vulnerable, those who can't afford a car. Um, they are, they can afford a bike and what's the, but that's their primary means of transportation. Uh, you know, as a primary means of transportation in an environment that snows, um, you know, that's where it's a little bit more appealing to have a little bit of a motor on there to get it quicker from point A to point B. Um, so we see a lot of motorized bicycles, even on our paths. Um, uh, Reconnect Rochester, we organize what's called the Complete Streets Makeover each year. This year, it's on North Clinton Avenue. Um, you know, that's, that's a primary arterial road. Um, the problem that we heard most from the, uh, the residents in the area was not necessarily the cars. That, that was the primary concern. They don't even cross the street because of the amount of cars, and it's unsafe. It's the number of, of bicycles and soon-to-be scooters in this city that are on the sidewalk that don't make it safe for people to walk along on the sidewalk. And, and I feel that that's voiced heavily here in this room. Uh, well, I, we, a, we had a... a a question over here for a while no, that's
14: okay. thank you my name is Beth Corley I'm from Nashville Tennessee and we have we have over 4,000 e-scooters in Nashville and it's it's horrible and one of the ways that they have um, tried to help with a little bit is to make some more parking stations um, but that has certainly not solved the problem we've had one person killed on the scooter. We've had one blind person that I know who was severely injured. She had low vision and of course they're just parked all over the sidewalks and she just tripped right over one and really hurt herself. So it is um, of course it's a political election year so they're <laughs> using that as a political thing too so that they can um, um, say yay or nay for it. What's it? But it's, it's severe, and, and one of those two deaths was in Nashville, so it's a, a, bad, it's a severe problem everywhere. But Nashville's getting worse and worse. We've, we've um, gotten more and more each year, and the more tourist place Nashville becomes, the worse it gets.
6: As, as micro-mobility options are increasing, I think we you know we 're saying let 's come up with a solution really it 's removing cars from this space and allowing pedestrians allowing bicycles allowing uh, you know, e- e- uh, e- whatever the next technology will be to utilize this space we 've run out of space really you know that 's what I look at is is the right of way from Essentially, in a city environment, it's from building to building. Well, there's only so much sidewalk. There's only so much room for a parked car. You know, why, why isn't that space used for a parked, you know, bike? Or just a, 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 a bench for a parked human being? <laughs> oh. um, yeah,
0: Charlie wanted the Char- mic. Here
6: you go, Charlie. And then we'll get, um, get into some questions
10: around there. Here you go, Charlie. I just wanted to address... Um, what Lucas suggested before, in terms of um, a national kind of effort to get a legislative solution and to regulate. Um, Ultimately, the answer to this whole problem is going to be an agreement between um, the people of the country that we're going to have to regulate ourselves in a way that protects everybody. And that is basically through legislation and legislation only happens when the body politic us let them know that it's time that we win and that's what we have to do. To get to that point, there are some efforts going on now that I think are important to mention. Uh, One of them is that um, uh, the um, advocacy committee of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, along with some other folks that are uh, interested in this problem, are beginning to do some talking about how do we get to a national um, bill of legislation that will basically set the wheels in motion, no pun intended, for, for a, an environment in which everybody gets the opportunity to have decent and regulated um, uh, pedestrian and, and vehicular traffic. And I, I don't say that as a kind of whimsical thing, I say that as a serious thing. And uh, I've had some discussions already with a person some of you may know is uh, Paso Um And she uh, is working to try and develop a, uh, an approach to this situation that can work. And she has some people in Washington that are supportive of what she's trying to do. And I think if we can link up with her and others in the other organization, as it were, as well as um, Blind Veterans Association, and um, people from America Walks and down revealing the whole vision of things. But the point is that if we can bring that kind of coalition to bear on the problem, we can win. And as soon as we get that done, the better we'll off be we'll all be.
15: Uh Mary Lynn Paifo, I have two questions. Number one, there are regulations currently on the books for littering. Going an e-scooter down on the sidewalk is litter. Another item is <clears throat> if it was mandated that e-bikes, e-scooters whatever, be charged by time from station to station. So if the person did not find a station and plug it in, it would keep ranking up dollar after dollar after dollar on their credit card. Believe me, they'd park it as far as cities not enforcing their codes for littering every city I know of and I don't know that many but the ones I know of already have on the books no wheeled vehicles allowed on sidewalks except motorized wheelchairs Mm -hmm. would it be possible to use the laws already on the books to force cities to enforce the code they already have
8: afternoon everyone. Kathy Casey from Albany, New York. One of the um, questions that was asked with regard to what our city's doing, Albany had a project uh, and is now completed called a road diet. They reduced the lane and added a bike lane but the problem with the bike lane is that cars need to park on the outside of that bike lane. So whoever opens their door to get out, they're gonna have to look both ways because you might get creamed with a bike. Um, that was the issue that was brought up. So somebody had asked about what they're doing and that's,
6: that's what Albany's doing. Actually, this gets back to the, what the Dutch do. Uh, the Dutch teach about the I would like, uh, yeah, but, it's, but I forgot what what the term is. The Dutch reach, I believe. Yeah, and it's just so then you you're reaching over with your right arm and making sure that you're looking over your left shoulder to see if there is something coming, a, a bicyclist,
0: in that case. One of the problems that that uh, has come up with bikes, uh, bike riders, is the same problem that that we're having with uh, motor vehicle drivers. Um, some of these guys have really great balance, and they can text while they're riding their bike. Um, I, some of you may know Seeing um, Eyes CEO Jim Kutch got hit by a bicyclist. Um, not, not severely injured, but injured enough. He and his dog were hit by a bike that never even stopped. Now, how you don't see a guy with a dog, you're not looking. Um, So we're dealing with some of those same kinds of issues with people um, handling these vehicles, these wheeled things.
16: My name is Kathy Lyons from Buffalo, New York. And two things. First of all, I'd like everyone in the room to become aware that the Federal Transportation Department is giving grants to municipalities to install roundabouts. So what we did in a town near Buffalo, a suburb, was go to their meetings and make them aware of how terrible roundabouts are for blind people. And then I found even motorists and pedestrians that didn't have any disabilities, and they didn't like them either. So we halted the installation of two roundabouts. That happened because they let us know ahead of time. They don't always do that. Sometimes I just put them in and say, how do you like it? <laughs> that doesn't work for us. And. I had a question for Charlie about vision zero. Is it the, the figure zero or the word zero? Z E R O or the, the number before one? The word, the word. I want to check when I get back and see if there is a vision zero in Buffalo. If there isn't, there should be. Thank you.
6: Correct. I, I don't believe Buffalo has one yet, uh, and stated, uh, the only Vision Zero um, program in New York State is in the city, so far. A lot of the big cities Yes, that's what it, it's starting with the larger urban areas, and Buffalo being a mid-sized city like Rochester.
9: And that's the Vision Zero movement uh, has its roots in Europe. Uh, in particular, in Sweden, unless I'm mistaken, uh, in in that they they drastically talk about road diets. I know those those guys were on a starvation diet. They uh, <coughs> they really were very very aggressive in a way that I've seen no new uh, U.S. city. Address. I mean, they, they real. I mean, fines for speeding are thousands of dollars. Just for example, uh, the the crossings are have been what are called choked down uh, to a remarkable degree. So where you might have a four lane street, they'll put it put tra- uh, narrow them down so that only two lanes can go through, so that all the crossing distances are greatly reduced and speeds are greatly reduced. So the Vision Zero movement began in Europe, and it's being implemented here, but it's not being implemented from a pedestrian point of view with the same level of aggression, if you want, or completeness, it was, or assertiveness, if you want to be pleasant about it, uh, as it as it is in Europe.
3: It's also not always called vision zero in the U.S. Right, because there's some for whatever reason it has become a politically charged term. So when you when you go looking for a vision zero policy, it
17: might not be vision zero policy. Hi, this is this is Sue Crawford from Silver Spring, Maryland. There are two points. One of which is that I mean, when Lucas talks about the speed of change. I mean, we had no idea about these floating bus stops until they took out the bus shelter in the bench last November from the bus stop that I usually use on my way home from work. So it just happens that fast, and to call around and say, who knows? And, and that's what the county said. Well, we're going to put in floating bus stops. So it's really important to stay on top. So you, you, once you get the accessible pedestrian signals in and everything like that, and you're feeling pretty good, and then bam, there's something else. The second thing is, is this is really irritating drivers too because they're taking a lot a lane away from cars. So it's just generally irritating everyone it seems to me and a lot of people do want to give up their cars so but it seems to me what their the priority is is other wheeled vehicles for transportation bikes or or the e-scooters or whatever and not pedestrians and it just seems to me if i don't know how the concept came that the bicycle lane should be immediately adjacent to the sidewalk Why not have the bicycle lanes be in the middle of the street and protected on either side? Why have it be on the curb, right next to the curb? I I don't understand that. But at any rate, my fear is that if if floating bus stops are put in all over the place, they're so intimidating that why would anyone want to take a bus? It'd be so intimidating to even try and get out there on a little island and stand and risk being hit by a car while you're waiting for a bus. So my fear is that it's really going to,
6: um, in the long run, hurt public transit. So I'm I'm kind of seeing a recurring theme. Um, you know that almost the the voice is always unheard. Um, and with a lot of projects, a lot of roadway projects, uh, a lot of these are funded through federal. Or state means, and in that case, they're they're mandated to have public input sessions. And in these sessions, is it's paramount that your voice is heard. So I, I cannot under understate the importance of those meetings.
18: Yes. Hi, my name is uh, Pamela Metzen. I'm from Los Angeles, California. And we do have laws about the only thing on the sidewalks are people with two feet, four feet, and wheelchairs. But what we're finding in certain areas is that you know cars can't, aren't, aren't supposed to turn on red, but bicycles ignore that. So we are almost getting killed by bicycles. And the other thing is I was walking with some friends down Santa Monica Boulevard, and I don't know how many times our dogs stopped for scooters. And if it wasn't for the dogs, I think all of us would have broken a knee, a ankle, or something. But the dogs were stopping, and we literally had to go way down on the floor to find out what they were stopping for. So we are working on some of these issues in L.A., and being in L.A., people do raise all kinds of H.W. over there about these kinds of things. But Santa Monica has gotten worse than most cities in L.A. right now. My name
19: is Josette Kernahan, I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I travel in the Vancouver area, also in Bellingham, Washington, and Seattle a great deal. Um, we have a great many problems in Vancouver. We have the bike lanes like everybody else, um, and all of the obstacles such as bike racks and signs and you name it. Uh, not only that, we have a huge homeless problem. And there are people you know, with their shopping carts parked all over the place and people sleeping on the sidewalks and you know, have all their junk and garbage all over the place. And it's, it's really horrible getting around. And you know, I have addressed the city on several occasions about concerns um, for blind people. And also, when you cross streets up there, um, the curb cuts are sort of, I think Lucas knows what I mean, they're facing into the traffic more as straight uh, here. You cross straight and you have a straight crossing, and you also have the tactile um, markings on the curbs, which we don't have either, which I've been trying to um, get put in place. Um, so I don't know, I find these bike lanes really dangerous. Uh, uh, I am a cane user present, hope to get another dog in the future, uh, but I, I, I just find the bike lanes really dangerous because I have run into them and uh, um, the traffic starts uh, really quickly. They don't give you much time and you're standing out there on the bike lane <laughs> hoping not to get hit. <laughs> anyway, um, I just thought I'd make some comments about some of that. Thank you.
20: Hi there my name is kim avila and i'm a researcher at george mason university in virginia and um, much of my studies have revolved around pedestrian access and environmental impact that affects people who are blind or visually impaired and their willingness to travel so i have statistics on that showing you know if the environment's not safe folks don't want to travel and that's a problem because it does impact their entire lives and as we all know But I did wanna just state, and I was late, so I don't know if you all spoke about this, but um, in one of my studies that uh, we had a pretty significant finding that I was not looking for, and it's the convergence of where environment and driver behavior really impacts that willingness to travel and safety. So in that study, two-thirds of my my sample had been hit by vehicles. All of individuals who are blind or visually impaired and I want you to guess, how many white cane violations were cited by the further drivers? None. none. Absolutely none. And um, so my participants said that they were actually blamed for the accidents. Um, I went out to the intersections where they were hit, and the police had drawn the intersections incorrectly. And I downloaded, you know, Google images and whatnot. So um, where we do have, I had participants who traveled in environments that were very, very nicely constructed with APSs, tactile markings, um, two four-lane roads and whatnot, not even something fancy like a roundabout. And, um, you know, the driver made a right turn on red when pedestrians present and, and hit them. And then the pedestrian who's blind was blamed for the accident. So um, I think in our advocacy efforts. So I took that data to our local police, and they basically said, "Well, we don't know all all the laws out there," um, which is really upsetting. But I think in our advocacy efforts, that first of all, we do need to make sure that the law enforcement is well aware. We have orientation and mobility based on decades of practice. Came out of World War II and also that these laws do exist. This is why they are there. Um, we never teach our participants, our, our clients to cross the street, you know, unsafely. And um, we do have that background. But that was a pretty, you know, where that we do have environmental constructs in place to keep people safe and then drivers run the red light, make a right turn on red, um, block the crosswalk, and I had participants who tried to cross the street and accidentally hit the car with their cane, got yelled at, got threatened, and all sorts of things like that. So um, we also need to make sure our drivers are being um, cognizant that there is diversity in our population. And some of us may not look, I don't know, uh, none of you look blind to me because I can't see how you look Um, so from here. So I think we need to make sure that people aren't stereotyping us and um, also blaming us for being hit.
0: Thank you so much, Kim, for speaking up. I'm really glad that you're here and that you did that. Um, and one of the points of the video project that the Embi- Environmental Access Committee is working on is to do exactly that, to find a way to get the attention of drivers and help them to understand their responsibility uh, in all of this. We're such a me culture now that you know, we, we don't, people don't always think beyond the end of their own nose or what, what it is they want at that given moment, whether it's to get a text out to somebody or, or whatever. Um, they're not thinking about consequences, they're just thinking about getting it done.
3: Another important piece of that is keeping an eye on your media and the way that journalists in your local papers or local press cover pedestrian mm-hmm. fatalities and accidents because how often do we see something that says, a car crashed into a person? Well, no, a person driving that car crashed into a person. Um, that, and that is one of the lighter offenses that I see in media depictions of people who get hit while walking, so being vigilant with your media, calling out local press when they cover a story in a way that is not supportive
20: to creating a culture of safety. I also, I'm sorry, I just wanted to add, I'm sorry. Um, one thing that I do when I do my research, I wear a police body camera, it's strapped to my chest, and so because we have people who are blind for being accused of all sorts of bad travel habits, which is completely false, when you have that data on you and you can download that, that is extremely Level. and to tell you the truth I wear it a lot even when I'm not taking data because
21: my feel it's there and I can capture that you know information Myra Ross from Amherst Massachusetts which is about 90 miles west of Boston my uh, the traffic engineer in our town is in love with roundabouts um, never asked if they had any impact on anybody before building them and I think the question that I want to ask is are there any position papers available Has anyone done any studies or gathered any information about blind people and roundabouts? Because I'm afraid there are gonna be more of them. And I'm, you know, the first few that he put in were on pretty rural roads with very little pedestrian traffic. The third one he put in was in the center of town and took out a light and it's dreadful. Um, And I, I really don't know what to do about it. So I'm hopeful that there's some material out there that I can bring to them
9: there's a ton of information on that Um, research was done uh, it was an NCHRP project I'd, I'd have to dig, Charlie do you remember the number on that one? But uh, on on, uh, visually impaired pedestrians, access to both roundabouts and uh, also what are called channelized turn lanes, which have a lot of similarity to roundabouts and are actually much more common. A channelized turn lane is if you have a major intersection and there's a single lane for right turners, and you have to cross that to get to the island to cross the main roadway. Perhaps you've encountered those. Um, that's called the channelized turn lane. And they have some characteristics that are very similar to roundabouts because you have to cross an uncontrolled lane of traffic to get to the island, if you know what I mean. So there was research done uh, on how to deal. We we were familiar with, and I was involved in that one too peripherally. Uh, And uh, there is, the problems are are self-evident. The solutions are not so easy. And roundabouts ain't going away. I can tell you that. They're just not. And the reason they're not going away is they save lives by the thousand. In other words, if you take an intersection that has uh, a, an accident rate, perhaps a fatality rate uh, that is, is calculated and you put in a, round, a well-designed roundabout, the, the pedestrian fatality rate, the vehicular fatality rates drop to near, nearly nothing. They are certainly more dangerous for blind and visually impaired pedestrians. Um, There are countermeasures that can be taken to make that less dangerous. For example, a well-designed pedestrian-designed roundabout should have a countermeasure for to because what happens particularly at the exit lanes at roundabouts is cars accelerate coming off the roundabouts, and you don't know when to go. It's it can be very dangerous. I'm not arguing that they're that they're great for blind pedestrians at all. I recognize the problems, but one of the solutions that they've come up with is, for example, a raised crosswalk so that. Uh, a car coming off of the roundabout has an incentive to stop and yield for pedestrians because if they don't, they're going to get airborne when they hit that, that essentially speed bump. (laughs) So, uh, there are also recommendations in, in that came out of that that research uh, for, for what are called uh, rectangular rapid flashing beacons. So that you can press a button and and yeah. make a, a light flash to indicate that you're go- that you're intending to cross. So there are countermeasures available to make roundabouts. Uh, more friendly to blind pedestrians, but I, you know, I congratulate uh, the the woman from before who said that they had stopped a couple of roundabouts. But as a national national sort of policy statement, I don't think that's going to happen. Can those be retrofitted? Yeah, sure. Where there's a will, there's a way. You know. <laughs> It needs to be a, That's a good question, and I think there needs to be a, a locator tone on that, in the same way that there is on APSs.
7: Okay. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, my name is Paul Kelly from Markville, Maryland, and I have a question about the pedestrian walk don't walk signals um, in the Washington area. You may probably all know that you know there are three states. So I'm not too familiar with Virginia, but like in D.C., um, you have the signal of um, dull white over um, red um, as the uh, walk signal for pedestrians, and I don't know what is in the red part of the of the uh, signal because I'm, I have low vision. But in Maryland, um, it it the light turns uh, white uh, when you can walk. Now it happens to be a dull white. They've been converting uh, a silver type of uh, white into a very dull light that um, merges with the glare in the environment so unless you have pretty acute vision you can't always see it my question is uh, whether there's any kind of movement uh, to have a uniform standard for traffic signals you know nationwide and to also choose light colors that people can actually see. Like, for example, like when for drivers, they have red and, and green, which are pretty visible, I think, to people.
9: I, I'll try and tackle that. Becky just said. Let, let me, I'm going to say something here that is, is really, really obvious, but Washington is weird. We're <laughs> 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 um,
2: <laughs> okay, that one.
9: It really is, just in terms of how they apply traffic signals and so on in D.C. They're quite unique in some ways. Um, in terms of national standards, I, I don't see the white going away, and the red is is that we we, we seem to have more trouble, actually, just based, and I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but I, 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 I know one. <laughs> um, the uh, more trouble with the glare from the red uh, bothering people quite a bit um, I, I, I don't know of any movement to change the white and red what you're seeing now is you're seeing the countdowns coming up next to the, 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 the flashing don't walk red hand type thing and that's causing problems for some people at night there's a lot of glare
14: Hi, this is Colleen Kitagawa from Richfield, Minnesota. And um, in about the last mm, four to five years, they did put in roundabouts all up and down 66th Street. Um, We have actually crossed them because they did put in that light, which is great. I taught my dog to find the poles for me. And when you press the light, it does say yellow light, you know, caution, yellow light flashing. So... um, They are a little bit scared to cross, but he does pretty good. But like I said, they're not my favorite to cross, but I didn't have a say for them to go in and they're putting more and more of them in where I live.
9: Also, I think, you know, I, 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 Lucas, I, my personal opinion is that what the Dutch do with the short guide dog cane the, and, and this, I'm out on a limb here all by myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. It, I think that what the Dutch do, because of the nature of the infrastructure in Holland, uh, you, where guide dog users in general all use a short white cane that they find a way to carry, I think that our pedestrian environment here in the United States, despite our best efforts, is changing pretty radically, pretty quickly. And I don't think it's crazy to think that over the next decade, some type of short white guide dog user cane might be employed here too because, you know, it, we all know that guide dog users in particular are uh, rare as hen's teeth, you know, so drivers don't expect to see them. They're more familiar with the white cane. So I, I anticipate that in the guide dog world anyway. There's a lot of
22: good oh question involves good old texting i work at a university and i have literally been ran into my guide dog and i several times by people who are just moseying along texting and just either turn and run into us or run into us crash into us from behind or are there statistics on the fatalities and um how do they handle that in in europe are there stiffer fines what is shown to be effective if anything
9: I don't know of anything, but I'll tell you that working a guide dog on a college campus these days is a really different experience. <laughs> it's really amazing, but everyone's got low vision. They're staring at something that's like six inches in front of their nose, and they don't see you coming until, until they all of a sudden look up and jump out of the way. Um, I... There's also a wonderful video on YouTube of of, it's a a humorous video that was put together called "Seeing Eye People," where they have people with staring at their cell phones being guided. Seeing Eye people being guided by other people that has because they so that they can stare at their cell phones more effectively. Uh, I don't know of I don't know of anything being done to address that anywhere
22: what I was meaning by the fatalities were the people in cars that are texting and hitting people was the fatality question I actually had.
9: Well, uh, you know, those are two dogs just playing with each other. (laughs) um,
3: Um, um. So the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and their traffic fatality data is starting to include a line item Mm -hmm. about distracted driving being the cause of of fatalities and accidents, but they don't necessarily break out what that distraction is. So, so fiddling with your radio would be categorized the same way in theory with texting.
9: Also, police reports aren't uniform in this way it's across trauma, the country.
3: Trauma centers and emergency rooms, and that's one of the issues with the scooters, too, is that they don't know how to capture in some of
21: Distracted driving? The term is too soft. These people are, their eyes are down. They're looking at their cell phone. Sometimes they have a donut at their side and a cup of coffee. They're thinking, they're listening to other things beside that, like the radio, and there are children in the back. And the penalties are not high enough for this stupidity
3: you're there's the no party. stopping
21: it. It's very frightening.
12: Not
9: only that, they put makeup on. interestingly. There's an ad on TV right now in the last few days that's come out for Subaru, where it shows a young girl driving a brand new Subaru, and she's going to. She's looking at her phone. And a, a warning light comes on the dashboard that says eyes are off the road and she looks up just in time to not run into another car. So they're trying the, the auto manufacturers are trying to address this a little bit now. It, it's very interesting. But they still stuff. have the
3: ads with the cars going eighty miles an hour uh, on streets. That too. And yeah. So I a it's a balance. Yeah, it's a balance, but I'll take it back together get.
2: It. Yeah.
23: I like that too. So this is Steve Robertson from Minnesota someone asked a question earlier about how do you locate your Lyft or Uber ride at the curb when there are a million other cars and other people there et cetera. and a solution i found is that both apps I think now offer a place to put a note into the driver before you even submit the request and I always write in there blind person with white cane and to watch for me, and that seems to help, help here. the drivers. The other problem I've had with drivers of all forms of transportation, like taxis, Uber, Lyft, and such, is that they pull up across the street and stop and expect me to cross through the traffic, you know. And so for us, those are that's like trying to go to a bus in the middle of the street. So... Those are issues, and I think they're relevant to what we're talking about today because they involve, you know, uh, not only us but any any disabled person trying to get public trying to get transportation from point A to point B. One thing to um, one thing to know. keep oh,
3: sorry. Go ahead, Heidi. Uh, one thing to keep your eye on. Um, I don't. I expect this will be coming out in the next couple of weeks, is that there's going to be proposed national legislation um, for ride share companies, Uber, Lyft, whatever it might be, to have a QR code on the back of their car that needs to be scanned before a trip can be started. Um, We're against that legislation because we think that there are any number of ways that having to scan a QR code would be limiting um, in access. Not um, to mention that you have to go out into traffic to scan the QR code, which well, you don't want people to no. do. Um, so just keep an eye out for that because that is something that you could contact your congressman and funders and really use your voice. Um,
0: that was actually there because there have been a couple of incidents over the last several months where somebody got into a car they thought was their Uber or Lyft and ended up getting kidnapped, things like that, which is pretty, pretty rare. What I always do, if I'm not sure, is I just call my driver and say, this is Becky, where are you? I can't see you.
24: Right. I would also suggest, I was actually told uh, not to use that note feature because it truncates so the drivers don't actually get to see a lot of what you're writing. Um, I was told to send a a text instead if i wanted to do uh, give a written notice uh, you can similar to what Becky was saying with placing a call it's just sending a text to the driver um, i on a related note i like to do that a bit before they come anyway because i have a guide dog and this way if i let them know i have one and that i'm blind and that um, i can't find them they're more likely to call out my name like i've requested or at least they know to expect that if you know they say they're if the app says they're there and i'm not there i'm going to be you know Contacting them, calling them in that case um, for uh, for us to work together to hopefully um, find them. But the other benefit of that too is from a guide dog uh, user's perspective, if they're you know thinking of denying me, and I've let them know that I have a dog, and they do deny me, it makes it very simple for me to you know file a complaint and prove that I was denied access because it's all in writing that they knew, and yet they you know canceled the ride or refused it or what have you.
4: I, I find that what was working more successful for me is I make a call to the driver as soon as I get the, the confirmation that a rider is on the way. I explain to them I'm blind, I have a cane, and I describe a visor or whatever it is I have. And I, I ask them to call me out by name, and I, I use Mickey because there's not that many common Mickeys around. And I find that to be very helpful because that I know they're coming. I've had people get into my Lyft and Uber at the airport where it just stops up and they're in a hurry to get in and they take off in my Lyft or Uber. <laughs> They, and I would suggest here twice I've used Uber this week and I've, the driver said that the description of somebody calling says I'm blind I have a white cane and a blue bag well there's a lot of us this week that have a white cane and a blue bag so I might suggest that we give them a little bit more description because there was three people standing out there with a white cane and a blue bag so that helps the driver as well thank you
11: Yeah, and I just want to say um, to like the person that was saying, um, make them say who the Uber or Lyft drivers make them say who you're picking up. Um, I th- there was this time like last week I was picked up from my friends and the guy was like, "Oh, I I'm Uber, okay? <laughs> who who are you here for?" <laughs> and I made them say my name and. I'm here for Catherine. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that's one thing that I amplify, emphasize that people do. Verbal confirmation is great.
19: I'm um, sorry. I wanted to comment too. Uh, we have the SkyTrain, which is an elevated subway system in Vancouver, and um, I'm just fine, since I don't have a dog anymore, I uh, rely, and there's nothing wrong with asking for assistance I don't think, in you know, a big dangerous city and also um, in a lot of the stations, uh, they're doing all kinds of maintenance, and there's um, all kinds of wide open spaces that you have to maneuver through, and I just get assistance from the, that's what they're there for. And I'm sure that most other cities have the same with their subway systems. They have the um, VIP number you can call. And uh, like, for example, from my place, I call them, and I say, I'm gonna be at the Patterson Station in 20 minutes, and they have someone there to assist me. And I get assistance downtown and other places I need to go, but I still use mass transportation. Just wanted to um, throw that out to you all. Thank you.
12: Hi, my name is Karen Gorgi. Can you hear me and understand me? So my name is Karen Gorgi, and I'm in New York City and I'm a founding member of something called the PASS Coalition, which is Pedestrians for Accessible and Safe Streets. Um, then we were founded in 2010. And I, I just have been listening and have kind of wanted to make a co- just a couple of comments. Um, one, and uh, Mary Beth was asking um, about enforcement and a couple other people were talking about that. And we've been trying to explore that within the city, and one of the things we, we hear um, is that for um, these bicycles and these scooters and et cetera, well, at least the bikes, they're not licensed, and so that there's no way that a, a police person trying to chase a biker on foot is gonna be able to stop them from you know running a light or going the wrong way on a one-way street. Or, or riding on a sidewalk, so that's a difficult thing. And we have, uh, we've talked about and tried to push for licensing in these, uh, in these situations. So far, uh, DMV, I think the Department of Motor Vehicles has not um, wanted to get involved, but that's one of the, one of the challenges for enforcement. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is I, th- I think in the situation we're dealing with in New York and I think in other places, I think you need both um, the carrot and the stick and we, we do need the stick and we certainly appreciate that that's happening and that ACBNY is a part of that. But we've also been able um, to create um really important good relationships with the Department of Transportation. there's been a lot of work done uh, with our coalition with it with um, the OM instructors who uh, work with our coalition and guide dog um, instructors as well for who have helped to train traffic engineers so that they really do understand what it's about and we've been told, very often that even though the the, uh, APS, the accessible pedestrian signals that are being installed, it's too slow, there's no question it's too slow, but they are really being done top top job on all of those. They're really, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that these people um, from transportation departments and et cetera, um, it's important for them to learn and it's important for us to create relationships with those people um, as well as demanding that, that our voice be heard. And I also do want to just say again, um, that it's already been said here, but our coalition does involve agencies for the blind, it does involve NFB, it does involve ACB, and a number of guide dog user groups, and I just don't think we're gonna get there until we bring all of us together so that we all can, as was said, create one voice to really make known what it is we're trying to do, thanks.
9: I think Pass is uh, is uh, exemplary in that regard and really forerunning in in terms of organizing and speaking with one voice.
6: This reminds me of uh, just a little study when I that that occurred when I was a student for landscape architecture. Um, you know, a professor had brought us around and you know said, "Okay, well, you know, if you're going to be designing spaces for the public, you need to design for everybody." In that, and so they tried us. You know, they, they got us as students sitting in um, in wheelchairs. A couple a couple students had blindfolds on, just to simulate what people, you know, everyday people go through. And and I'm just wondering what you know if, if there's ever been any thought from ACB to host state DOTs and have. Mm-hmm. You know, just those engineers go out there with a blindfold on and walk across the street.
0: It's, it's been done in a number of communities. No, we in yeah, we, uh, we did it up in Westchester. Um, it's been done in a number of places, and it, it, it can be very effective. You just have to remind them of what they learned during that, ex- that experience when it's you know a few months behind them. But yeah, I think that's a terrific idea, um, and I think it's something that people, as advocates, we, you know, we want to consider at the local level. Um, and I know when we did it in Westchester, we managed to get a couple of O&M instructors and a guide dog instructor um, to work with us. And we, and we did, um, we blindfolded them and took them across the street. And then um, we asked them if they wanted to do it with a white cane, and they said no. <laughs> um, and, you know, at that instant, you know, we felt that we had had an impact. What the key seems to be is to go back and remind them of the impact periodically. Well, it's Turkey, can yes, John, yeah, thanks. just step up and.
22: This is Mary Heroyan, I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts, and we did something similar on a couple, uh, past two or three white cane days, we blindfolded Um, some city officials, including traffic engineers, to come and walk with a sighted companion um, along our downtown area, just to get an idea of what it's like. And I'm thinking perhaps we need to be doing that with police officers in conjunction with White Cane Day or White Cane Week events, especially hearing how police have their biases about traffic accidents involving blind pedestrians. They need to know what it's like to be a blind person traversing their streets and understanding that it's not the fault of blind pedestrians necessarily for the traffic accidents. So perhaps we could, on a local levels, working with police, even inviting them to chapter meetings as well.
2: This is Pat G And one of the themes that I've heard today, particularly I think Charlie brought it up, was getting involved. And and I wanted to take this opportunity to congratulate Paul Paul Kelly, I think, from Virginia here. Um, There have been a few people involved in Virginia with doing uh, intersection designs, getting APSs installed, and they have just had a major victory over the last year in which they have uh, put enough pressure on DOT and Congress to uh, get intersections done throughout the state. I think it's 25 or 50 each year, uh, and so they have gotten the um, uh, the the attention of traffic engineers, and and they are starting to put them in at a much faster rate than they were doing previously. And I think what this uh, what this really indicates, and I think some people are reluctant sometimes to get involved in transit issues because they hear things like LPI and MUTCD and all those other terms, and they think can I make a difference if I get involved? And you really can. I mean, a lot of it is building the relationships, the commitment to doing it, understanding that it takes time, it's slow, but you know what, it really is worth it. So there's an awful lot that uh, we can do as we just get involved, Uh, even one person within a um, environment or or, uh, a municipality to get involved. Learn, listen, build the relationships, and you will be able to make that difference. This is Lucas,
9: um, I just want to say that uh, you know traffic engineers have a big job, and we, meaning the community uh, of professionals and people who are blind or visually impaired, are a really, really tiny fra- fraction of, of of the people that they work with. So I always think of it as if, if, if you take a penny and you hold it right in front of your eye, that penny can appear bigger than the Statue of Liberty if you're looking across New York Harbor. You know what I mean? It's just big enough to block the entire Statue of Liberty. And that's us. We see the world from our perspective. If you're at the Statue of Liberty and you're looking back at Battery Park you might be able to spot one person over there with their hand up in front of their eye. And that's the traffic engineer's perspective on the world. They're trying to deal with all these cars, all these people, trying to keep everybody safe. They've got an enormous job on their hands. And we have to, to, to become obvious to them, we have to jump up and down over there on Battery Park at the very least and yell loud and say, hey, <laughs> we're here, don't forget us. So I would say take a traffic engineer to lunch if you have a chance, <laughs> you know, so that you become they become aware of, of 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 you as a person, what your needs are, and 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 uh, <clears throat> put it put it in their face. You don't have to be unpleasant. You can have them at least leave the tip at least.
19: Uh, just that here again, I brought this up on the WCV caucus call on the twenty third of June um, i 'd like to see ACB and other blindness related organizations and consumer organizations do more with getting the media involved uh, i 'm talking about newspapers TV talk shows um, you know, getting our needs met uh, by educating the public in that way too, because I see very little. Uh, there might be the odd story about someone who's done a fantastic job and they don't really focus on um, our needs and our, uh, you know, what puts us in danger out there in public and so forth. Anyway, uh, thank you.
6: Josette, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, that that it seems um, I work at both the state and the local level for volunteering, and it's it seems much easier to organize at the local level and target a lar- uh, you know, the local. Um, you know, we, we go after our local NPR station, and so they're right there, you know, reporting about anything that we're doing. Um, at, you know, for the state level advocacy, it's a little bit more difficult for us. Um, But, you know, again, at the the local level, it's as simple as just making that one connection with, uh, you know, with one of the the media, the local media outlets. Okay.
0: Yeah, as Heidi and Mike both, Michael both mentioned, as did Josette, I think, I think we kind of forget about the media, but especially on the local level, both the, the print and journal, the journalist media and social media um, can be our friends. Um, They can also drive us crazy, but, you know, I think, especially at the local level, I think we reach wherever we think we can get the word out best at the local level. A lot of cities and counties have committees with varying names that that might be a disabilities committee, an ADA committee, a transportation committee. Um, There are some that are mandated, Um, for example, I I guess, I don't know if it's around the country, but in New York State, um, the counties have their Transportation Advisory Committee, and although they spend a lot of time on paratransit, they do deal with other accessibility issues with um, public transportation and that kind of thing. So we need to find out where our voice can be fit in and heard. Um, I really want to take this opportunity to thank Heidi and Michael, and Michael's a great mic runner, by the way, Um, Lucas, Charlie, Pat, um, and all of you for your thoughtful questions and comments. Um, This is not the end. This is the beginning. We have a lot of work to do ahead of us, and hopefully um, we'll find our way to getting what we need done done starting locally and then setting examples I, I think there are some model cities out there that have done some really great work and there are others that have not even asked the question so um, I think we have a lot of work to do I think we have a lot of positive energy I think we have a lot of talent and while we may be a small voice small voices can be loud so thank you all for being here um, stop by and see us on Tuesday at the Marketplace between 7 and 9. Um, stay in touch with us. Check out the Pedestrian Safety Handbook on the ACB website. It's still there. Um, the, there's a link to the MUTCD there. Um, so feel free to look in there for information. Contact any of us that you might have met. and. Enjoy the rest of the convention. Again, thank you all so much for being here. Yes, hold on, hold on. Yes, Charlie? Can we get Charlie and Mike? Mike, Mike.
10: Thank you. Um, you all heard that uh, old saying, the come to Jesus moment? Well, I think we've reached that here at ACB. And... Um, We've been trying for years now to put together coalitions and to make things work. And I think we actually have a good shot at doing this. And the reason we have it, that shot at all is because it really matters to all of us that this thing succeed. And we're we're facing a common problem. We have a common solution. But the only way to get there is for all of us to commit ourselves. And it's not just about leaders and followers, it's about all of us together because the only way we're going to win this is together. And so when you hear from the Environmental Access Committee, when you hear from uh, GDUI, when you hear from other organizations that we need to do this or that, get involved. Make your voice known, make your opinion heard, and uh, together we will win. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Charlie, and again, thank you, all of you. Um, keep that energy going, keep that, those brainwaves going so that you're, you're coming up with some ideas. Communities have different needs, different environments. Um, they may require what works in New York City may not work somewhere else and vice versa, um, whether it's suburbia or some a rural small town or uh, an urban area. Um, we can make a difference, and it's really important that we find a way to to work with others to do that. So again, thank you all very, very much. Have a great evening.
2: Thank Thank you, everybody.